0: The reading is from Matthew 28, the final verses, 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them,
1: It would be very helpful to you and I if you'd keep that passage open with you in your Bibles. As we come to God's Word, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that your Word is able to make us wise for salvation in the Lord Jesus. Please speak to us now to teach us, where necessary, rebuke us, to correct us, and to train us in righteousness so that we may be thoroughly equipped for the work you have in store for us this we ask in jesus name amen the 2021 census god's obituary or so many have claimed the last census reported that 43.9 percent of christians in Austra- or people in australia considered themselves to be affiliated with Christianity as their chosen religion. So, put that in in perspective, in a room of 20 people, now there are nine Christians. That's a huge slide from previous figures, uh, and it's accompanied by the sound of the secularists rubbing their hands with glee. The previous census taken in 2016 reported that 52% of Australians consider themselves to be Christians. That's one in two. However, other studies around the same time as the, the previous census, the before the last one, reported that only 14% of Australians actually attended church with any regularity. And by regular, they meant at least once a month. So not a very high bar. So here's a thought. Could it be that disengagement with church might have at least something to do with the the steady decline we're seeing in the number of people in our country and our society who are willing to stand up and be counted for Jesus. Now, there are numerous reasons why people have felt that disengagement with the church is actually the right thing to do. For many, uh, they feel that church is irrelevant to their lives. And, you know, churches dithering on the truth of God's word in the Bible haven't helped with that. For others, they just can't stomach the abuse and the hypocrisy and the greed, which sadly does characterize so many churches. There are too many cases where these things are exactly the problem, and we've got to be humble enough to admit it. But could it be that the biggest factor uh, in the decline of Christianity in Australia is not the rise of secularism or the advances of science, but it's actually Christians not being meaningfully connected to a church that proclaims the gospel. You know, Jesus has given his church as the place, or rather the family within which our discipleship is meant to take place. The location of our gospel growth as we learn from him and learn to imitate him through His through our engagement with his word. Without his church, our discipleship, will be unavoidably weakened. It's just like the familiar illustration of the burning coal that's taken out of the fire to slowly lose its warmth and its glow and go cold and die. Now, over the, these last three weeks, we've been digging a bit deeper into God's word in the, at the very end of Matthew's gospel, This what's often called the Great Commission, Jesus' final words to his disciples in the Gospels. And rather than just seeing this as a call to take the Gospel to the farthest corners of the earth, we've seen this call to discipleship is rather about disciples making more disciples wherever they find themselves. A ministry that's centered on the Gospel and focused on the Bible. Today we're going to see that the local church has a very important place to play in our discipleship. So please do have your Bible open there at Matthew 28, uh, verse 16 to 20. We'll spend our time there this morning. Now, as we look over these words of Jesus, you won't find the word church in these five verses. So we might be left scratching our heads and wondering where church fits into Jesus' call to discipleship. Jesus doesn't mention a church here. There are no church buildings in the Roman Empire in the 1st century, in the mid-1st century. Uh, There was no congregation of East Jerusalem Presbyterian Church where they all attended every Sunday. But that's because these disciples on the mountain themselves are the church. See, when Jesus commissioned his 12 apostles back in Matthew chapter 10... They were a mirror image of the twelve sons of Jacob who became the fathers of God's Old Testament people, Israel. And so even though Judas fell away, these apostles were meant to be the fathers of God's new people, made up of all nations. In other words, these eleven disciples were the first church leaders, they were the first pastors, the first elders. And despite doubts, as we read in verse 17, and despite being painfully slow learners at times, they were authoritatively commissioned by Jesus and empowered with his presence to lead his church into a new era of salvation history. But we've got to recognize that they were not just leaders of the church. Because even though they were appointed as leaders of Christ's church, they themselves were also very much a part of the church. Now, discipleship is a massive theme for Matthew in his gospel. It's there on just about every page. But he does something very interesting in the way he describes the role of the 12. Now, remember, he himself was one of those 12 that Jesus appointed. And, of course, we're used to talking about the 12 apostles. Uh, Matthew actually only ever uses the word apostle once in his entire gospel. And that's back in chapter 10, verse 2, as Jesus appoints these 12, uh, gives them the special responsibility of going for him. Uh, Apostles were literally sent ones. Apparently, it's a word that comes from the the Roman navy of the first century, Uh, those who were sent out on a mission. So it would actually make sense to call these guys apostles in chapter 28 as well. But Matthew carefully avoids the danger of professionalizing gospel ministry throughout his whole gospel by saying that, yes, they were apostles, but actually they're disciples. He refers to them in every other instance in the gospel simply as disciples. And his point being that while they were commissioned by Jesus for the particular task of pioneering the New Testament church, at the end of the day, they were just disciples of Jesus himself, whose job it too was to make other disciples. And so Jesus continues to call and provide leaders for his church, but we must always remember that all of us, pastors, elders, deacons, Sunday school uh, teachers, those serving in the kitchen, those serving with the music, the tech team, even those who just faithfully attend church each Sunday, the end of the day, we're all just disciples together of the Lord Jesus, called to make more disciples as part of our discipleship. And that, friends, is what really constitutes the church. Now, back to Matthew 28 for a moment. It's clear that Jesus intends for our discipleship to take place in the context of the church, his church, among other disciples, and together with other disciples who were leaders. That mountain in Galilee was ground zero for the New Testament church, in fact, ground zero for what we're doing this morning. So what can we expect from discipleship in the context of the church? Well, Jesus expects three things. He expects disciple-making, he expects baptism, and he expects teaching. And this, writes one Bible scholar, this represents Christ's standing orders for his church. Of course, I realize that each of these could be a sermon on its own. Uh, Jesus expects that his church will make disciples by reaching out with the gospel to seek and save the lost. And that this is not just the task of church leaders or professional evangelists, but it's the task of every disciple who's part of his church. And following from that, Jesus also expects his church will be the place where his word is taught and learned, again, not just by those appointed to preach and teach, but by ordinary disciples as we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. That's from Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. And of course, we covered the place of discipleship, I'm sorry, of the Bible in our discipleship last week but I've deliberately saved that call to baptize until now because of the way in which Jesus intends baptism to be essential to the disciple-making ministry of his church. I'm going to make this kind of the focus of what we talk about this morning. So what does it mean that the church has a responsibility to baptize? Now, often I think we think of baptism as something we do. It's something we do to make a public stand of our faith in Jesus. And, of course, that is part of it. But less often do we think of baptism as something that's done to us. Because here Jesus' command is not that disciples are encouraged to be baptized, but that his disciples, the early church, would go about baptizing others. Now, the Bible does cover baptism far more broadly than what we have here in Matthew 28, but that's a sermon for another time. My intention is that what I say this morning will be true regardless of how much water is used. Uh, And also, while I'm going to emphasize the baptism of believers, this has important implications for the baptism of believers' children as well. So what does it mean then when Jesus tells these disciples to go on baptizing the disciples they're going to make? Please look with me carefully at verse 19. There Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the name of the Son and of the name of the Holy Spirit. Now we've already discussed Jesus' command that baptizing should be done to new disciples, the disciples they go and make. But what comes in the next verse? Well, it's baptism in the name of. What that means is that baptism is a sign of identity. Now, there's so much talk of identity in today's world, isn't there? There's sexual identity and gender identity and racial identity and ideological identity and something called identity politics, which I barely understand. I don't think there's been a time in history when people have been so desperate and so obsessed with feeling like they belong somewhere, of feeling accepted, of being able to to hermetically seal their identity around something. But this is actually what Jesus means baptism to be. In the name of is a statement of identity and a statement of belonging. But belonging where? Belonging to whom? Well, Jesus says, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And just to say that Jesus, uh, he isn't mixing up his plurals and singulars here. Uh, he's making a theological point, not a grammatical one, by saying that there's one name for three persons. And that's because the God of the Bible is one God in three persons. Father, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And so our baptism indicates our belonging to God in all His fullness. I'm going to let the 16th century French reformer John Calvin explain this. He says, Thus we perceive that God cannot be truly known unless our faith distinctly conceives of three persons in one essence, and that the fruit and efficacy of baptism. Proceed from God the Father, adopting us through his Son, and after having cleansed us from the pollutions of the flesh through the Spirit, creating us anew to righteousness. So bringing this all together, it's the job of the church to recognize when someone belongs to God and to affirm that through baptism. Baptism says that a person, whoever they are, wherever they've come from, whatever they've done, now belongs to the living God because of God's promise to them fulfilled in Christ and sealed with his spirit. And it's the church's job to recognize that, to affirm it, and to broadcast it. But baptism doesn't just affirm belonging to God it also affirms belonging among God's people, belonging with those who also belong to God. And that's another reason why the church is called to baptize, to recognize those who belong and to ensure that the church is made up only of those who belong truly to God in Christ. Let me say to you at this point, if you're here this morning, and you call yourself a Christian, but you've never been baptized, we'd love to talk to you and help you to to take that step, uh, to engage with us in that way of allowing us to affirm and assure you of your salvation in Christ. So if you'd like to get baptized, please do have a chat to me after the service. Now, there is an uncomfortable side to what Jesus is calling the church to do here. I wonder if you've kind of picked up on this already. Because by calling the church to affirm those who do belong, Jesus is also calling his church to do the opposite, not to affirm those who do not belong. In other words, the church must always be very careful not to fool people into thinking they belong among God's people when they have yet to bow the knee to Jesus and receive his mercy. You know, going back to the census for a moment, What we're seeing in the census is not the death of Christianity. It's actually the death of nominalism. Explain what that means. So what we're seeing as fewer and fewer people identify with Christianity as a religion. We're not seeing people walk away from Jesus. We're seeing people who never really had a relationship with Jesus in the first place, not kidding themselves anymore. Because at the same time, we're seeing across Australia a deepening of Christian faith, of people actually coming to church. You know, the, the biggest demographic that's actually coming to church regularly at the moment is 25 to 39-year-olds. I find that quite incredible and quite encouraging as well. But more and more, people are finding it's impossible to label themselves as Christians when that actually makes no difference to their lives uh, and actually isn't true. But at the same time, we're seeing genuine believers standing up and being counseled. And that's very important. One of the most obvious ways we try and help people not fool themselves here at Grace is by the reminder every, every time we come to take part in the Lord's Supper, as we celebrate the gospel in our lives, we always remind us ourselves that this is something only for those who've put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord and who've been baptized in his name and are not living in unrepentant sin. And we say... When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, if that's not you, the supper's not for you either. Instead, it's a time to reflect on the gospel and consider where you stand with God. But what we do in the Lord's Supper is not something that will make you a Christian. It's a celebration of what's already gone on inside someone's heart and life. Now, let me just say, the church is not called to have a bouncer on the door and to deny entry to those who are not disciples. But it is called to challenge those who are not yet disciples to consider the gospel before anything else, and while being warm and welcoming, to deny them true belonging until they belong to Jesus. What will God say to the church that basically fools someone into believing that they belong when they don't? That they can attend for years, be known by name, be serving in ministries, giving large sums, only to be told by Jesus on the final day, I never knew you, depart from me. At that point, the church has cruelly exploited a person at the expense of their soul, and that cannot please the Lord who has called us to make disciples and baptize them. Let me just say at this point that if you are here this morning, you've been sitting in churches for years thinking you're a Christian, but have yet to bow the knee to Jesus and actually call him your savior and your Lord, you'd like to make that step this morning, please have a chat to me or to a trusted Christian friend after the service because that's actually what comes before anything else. So yes, that's, that's an uncomfortable truth drawn from what Jesus is saying here. On the other side though, on the other hand, there is a comforting truth, a command that is far more comforting. And that's the way in which the church is also called to affirm someone's discipleship and affirm their belonging to Christ. Because while baptism is a once-off event, the spirit of baptism continues. So when a Christian sins and responds in humble repentance, the church needs to be the safe place that they can come to and be reminded that they still belong to God and his grace is enough. When a Christian is haunted by their past, by that abusive relationship, by that abortion, by that lifestyle, by that crime, by that addiction, the church needs to be the safe place that they can come to and be reminded that they did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. They need to be reminded that they still belong to God as his dearly loved child. When a Christian doubts, the church needs to be the safe place they can come to with those doubts and be reminded that even some of the disciples doubted, but Jesus still called them to be his disciple-making disciples. We got that from verse 17 of today's passage. And of course, when a Christian is hated by the world for Jesus' sake, the church needs to be the safe place they can come to and be reminded that they hated Jesus too. And that Jesus still loves them. That even if they belong nowhere else, they still belong to God's family in Christ. The church has a very important role to play in affirming where someone belongs. Now, of course, the church's job to affirm the believer and challenge the unbeliever is impossible unless we actually know one another and we are known ourselves. This work of affirming someone's belonging with Jesus through baptism, yes, it's, it's done by the leaders of the church, but it's done on behalf of the church. Now, I know to some, the idea of being known like this and being vulnerable to one another might sound as exciting as dental surgery. But think about the person sitting next to you today. Do they know how you became a disciple of Jesus? In fact, do you know how? Do they know how you became a disciple? Do you know how they became a disciple? Do you know what they're enjoying about life with Jesus? Did they perhaps know what you're finding hard about life with Jesus? In fact, do you know their name? <laughs> and perhaps these are conversations to have this morning. Uh, before we go out to morning tea or over morning tea because this is actually what the church is meant to be disciples who know one another and can both challenge and affirm each other I think this raises in some way the issue of technology in our engagement with Christ's church I'll explain how I got there um one of the things that it's been pointed out that technology does really well, especially this the, the era of social media and social interaction that we have online, uh, it's often been pointed out that this allows for what's called low social friction. It means that it's much easier to relate to someone on a superficial level. So think of um, previously where you would have to go and meet someone uh, if you wanted to, you know, if you're looking for a, a, someone to marry, You'd have to go and meet someone, maybe go out. With, you know, a friend would have to know them, uh, be introduced to someone. Uh, now it's as easy as swiping left or right on a, on a phone. Low social friction. And of course, this has come into the way in which we engage with each other as well. Now let me just say, I think social media is a not a great place for Christians to interact with one another uh, for all sorts of reasons. But when we start thinking about Something like our live stream this morning that the guys are very faithfully running this morning. On one level, it's a huge blessing and it allowed us to continue and even grow gospel ministry over 22 weeks of COVID lockdowns. But now that we can meet together again without restrictions, we've got to remember and recognize that the place to grow as disciples is not anonymously from the other side of a screen, but by being present with other believers where They know you and you know them. Now, let me say to those who are watching on the live stream, we're very glad to have you with us this morning. We've got no plans to stop our live stream anytime soon. But if you can get here with us next Sunday, please do that. We'd love to have you in the room with us to know you and for you to know us. And if you are not within driving distance of us, can I encourage you to find another local church, place where the Bible faithfully taught. It might not be perfect. In fact, they're very unlikely to be perfect. But go and find another fellowship of believers where you can grow as a disciple of Jesus together with other disciples. Because that's the way that Christ has designed his church. Now, I think there's another application here also for the easy access we have through technology to very large, very successful, and also often very faithful ministries overseas. While their sermons and podcasts might be very helpful and might be very biblical and have very faithful things to say, I think whenever we listen to one of those sermons or one of those podcasts, we've always got to keep in mind that we are not a member of their church, that we are not living in the communities they are speaking into, often we're not even in the same country, and they don't know you and what difficulties and joys you're experiencing in your walk with Jesus. By contrast, and while we can always do better, your church family here does. And please know that uh, conversations that I have with you and I have with ministry leaders during the week, they often inform the way I put things across on a Sunday as I teach God's word. Because, you know, here as we meet and as we gather and as we read God's word together, God has a word for us here today as believers in Bundrum, on the Sunshine Coast, here at Grace Christian Church. Now, I recognize that our local church here and other local little churches we might be part of, they might not be as slick and as polished as the stuff we can listen to and access online. Might not be enough references to the Greek and the Hebrew. Uh, There might not be as many quotes from dead guys as we'd like. But God designed things so that the best place to hear his word taught place where we are comforted and taught and challenged and yes even rebuked is the place where we are personally known and where we know the people we can see the lives of the people who teach and preach to us as one writer put it a podcast is not a bust now these last three weeks we've looked at jesus call to discipleship we've seen that it's centered on the gospel we've seen that it is focused on his word and we've seen today that it is based in his church these are three ingredients to our christianity that must be present if it is to be authentic and growing and we ignore any of these at our peril it's very dangerous to ignore any of these to so just stand on the gospel and ignore the rest of god's word in fact i don't understand how you could do that but there you go so have our Bibles and our relationship with God, but ignore his church and the church's place in our lives. It's dangerous. It's not the way Christ has designed our discipleship to be. God has given us the gospel for our new birth into his family, and he's given us his word and his church. And when we say church, not an institution, but a family of fellow disciples in whom his word dwells. He's given those things for our nurture and our growth as his children. So I've got to ask this morning, Is being part of Jesus' church important to you? Do you prioritize being here on a Sunday? And I realize, of course, the people in this room, I'm preaching to the choir. But is church your first priority on a Sunday morning? Is meeting with other believers during the week your first priority where you'll say no to other things so that you'll be there with those other Christian brothers and sisters? Do you come to church in order to get or also in order to give? to be involved in the lives of fellow disciples and for them to be involved in your life? Is church important to you? Now, the renowned 20th century evangelist Billy Graham uh, was used by God in incredible ways over 60 years to bring people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think there are people here today, actually, who became Christians at Billy Graham missions. He visited Australia for the first time in 1959. But over 60 years of gospel ministry, through 417 missions on six continents, it's estimated he preached the gospel to over 100 million people, and that 3 million people responded to his invitation to accept Jesus into your heart. And they came down the front of one of the missions and they were prayed for and followed up with. And yet, with such incredible impact, it's staggering to realize that Billy Graham baptized no one who responded to the gospel at one of his missions. And, by the way, that's got nothing to do with his good Presbyterian upbringing. I've been reading a fascinating biography on the life and character of Billy Graham lately. uh, And especially it focuses on the life and character of his wife, Ruth. But the book explains that these massive rallies and this incredible impact for the gospel were actually just a small part of a much bigger picture. The writer says that Graham attached great importance to the key role of the local church, whose job it is to deepen the faith of new believers and to anchor them in God's word. He felt that his contribution to this was very small, as the more important task was up to the local Christians. According to Graham, the commitment of local churches and fellowships was irreplaceable. Active collaboration of the local churches was the element that, in the end, proved how blessed the evangelistic meetings would be and how much long-term fruit would result. His closest co-worker for many years, T.W. Wilson, commented, I know of no other institution on earth that is better equipped to make disciples than the local church. You know what? Jesus wholeheartedly agrees. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you so much for your church. Father, as rough and ready as it may seem, as challenging as it may be to us sometimes to be part of, we thank you. For our brothers and sisters in Christ, in whom your word dwells, in whom your spirit dwells, and who are called by your name. Father, please help us to love your church, to value your church, and to see the important place your church has in our walk with you. Father God, please help us as well to trust you enough to be part of your church to be making disciples ourselves, to be walking with one another as we walk with you. And Father, we pray that you would deepen a genuine faith in Jesus here in our church, across our land, and across our world. Father, please protect your church, both here and elsewhere, from hypocrisy, from greed, and from abuse. and from watering down the truth of your word. Father, please keep us faithful. Please keep us gracious. Please keep us gospel-minded, that in everything we might want to see the, the name of the Lord Jesus exalted in the world and in each other's lives. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory's sake. Amen.